The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And there's been a lot going on in technology as always. There's a big uh, security vulnerability scare out there relating to the Log4 shell. This was a a vulnerability, a zero-day exploit that was discovered And that particular subroutine is everywhere. We'll go through and discuss that in a bit today. We uh, this week we're going to feature uh, the man who's co-founder of the biggest non-fungible token exchange uh, or marketplace out there, OpenSeas. His company, which he only started in 2017, is now worth. $10 $10 billion. So this guy is really making some waves in the NFT space. Um, Air tags are in the news. Apple's trying to make it more difficult to stalk somebody with an air tag. Uh, there was a problem. You know, in particular, women were finding air tags stuck in their purse or in their suitcase, and people were tracking them. And Apple is trying to solve this stalking problem. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Leslie in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I'm buying a new printer from my home office. What's a better option, laser printer or inkjet? Leslie in Fairfax. Well, that's the perennial uh, decision, Leslie. Laser jet or, or inkjet well you know inkjets as you know they've got a little nozzle that that sprays drops of inks onto the page uh and depending on the printer you might be uh you might have uh just one color it's a monochrome printer if it's a uh it's a color printer you might have uh uh you know you, you you might have three colors you get up to six colors so uh you uh, and it's you're basically spraying ink. Now, a laser printer, on the other hand, is more complicated. Instead of ink, it uses uh, powder, and it layers the powder on the paper, and then the the paper is heated in a fusing drum as it passes over a fusing a hot drum called the fusing drum, and it fuses onto the paper and basically melts. And so, um, laser uh, you know, laser jets tend to be uh, more uh, cheaper per copy uh, as your, you know, for the ink. But on the other hand, the laser jet itself, because it's more, has more complexity, is more expensive. Now, um, ink jets, uh, are, are if, you're, if you're printing a lot of color, ink jets tend to have a more vibrant color. Uh, they, 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 you can also, with an ink jet, you can print, uh, you can print uh, pictures if you want. 
Um, I tend, I, I've got a printer for my pictures at home. I use dye sublimation. I actually prefer that better for pictures, actually. It actually transfers the dye from a little piece of cellophane, and it makes fantastic prints. So I'll, if I want to just print up something quickly instead of sending it off to the thing, I'll just use my dye sublimation printer. So you actually now, have a, a separate printer just for photos? Just for photos, yeah. It's, it's hooked to Wi-Fi. Okay, so, so if we're down at the, say, at the Bay House, we've got people visiting us, we take a picture. Nobody ever gets a copy of the picture. Well, I can instantly print a copy of the picture and give it to, give it to someone. And I, I like just being able to do that. Uh, so uh, I like to occasionally actually have pictures. But the dye sublimation is expensive per print. You know, you're probably spending 50 cents a print. I mean, it's not like it's super cheap. But, but the dye doesn't dry up. Now, now the problem with inkjet is uh, the, this is this is the dirty little secret. They sell inkjet printers super cheap. You only pay like $100 to get an inkjet printer. It's super cheap. And then they just really charge you for the, the, uh, the ink cartridges. So whenever you replace the ink, they're expensive. They're, they're really expensive. So an, an inkjet could cost you 20, 30 cents a page because of the cost of the ink. Now, the other problem with the inkjet is that if you don't use, if you don't do a lot of printing, the ink will, will, will dry out. And then, you know, like it sits, you know, unused for a year and you just occasionally print, print out something, uh, the, the ink will dry out. Now, if you're printing a lot of stuff, the, uh, the laser jet's better. I mean, it's gonna be uh, less than 10 cents a copy. And uh, and you just put in more toner, call it toner. And uh, the laser jet is uh, is much cheaper per copy, but the laser jet itself is more uh, is more expensive. So typically, what you'll find is that if you've got an office printer, the office has got a lot of high volume printing. Uh, those tend to be laser jets. Can you still do it, colors on those? Yeah, you can. You can do colors on them. Yeah. yeah. Because it's uh, it's just like a color copier. I mean, so like our copiers at work are they're also printers. So we've got, and so it and so. But what you do with uh, if you're doing it with color, you've got different colors of dye that are that are sprinkled on powder. Different colors of powder, and it sprinkles on different colors. And the and you can do quite nice color printing with uh, with with a laser jet. It's not as vibrant as the as the ink jet. Now, typically then at home where people have got a low volume, you know, it's just like onesie twosie, you're not, you're not really printing a lot of stuff. Uh, you tend to have ink jets. So I've got, I've got ink jets at home. I've got the one dye sublimation printer that I use for my photos. The one ink, I've got one inkjet printer that, that is such good resolution that I could put photo paper in it and I could print photos. But I don't think the photo quality on the inkjet is as, is as good as the dye sublimation because it, it it tends to smear a little bit. So I would think for your application, although you didn't tell me how much you're printing, I'd say for your your home use, you probably should go for the uh, for the inkjet. Now, there is a way to reduce your cost. There are um, um, secondary uh, ink cartridges available that are not sold by the manufacturer. And people will take in, they'll, they'll, they'll take empty cartridges, they'll refill them, and they'll sell them as refurbished cartridges. I've used those, those aren't bad. 
Now, the manufacturers, especially, um, you know, HP, they hate that. So then they started putting a little chip in the cartridge, ink cartridge. So if it's not an authorized cartridge, it won't, it, it won't operate. So they don't like you to do that. But if, if, you're, if your inkjet will take a, uh, a refurbished cartridge, you, you can cut the cost of the ink down significantly. So I suspect if you have an older printer, um, the chip won't work on it. Uh, you can use any cartridge you want, but probably the newer ones, they've, you know, from HP, they will definitely uh, not allow you to use a non-authorized. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah they don't, they, they really don't, don't like that. Now, and now what I always do, I, I get the, on the inkjet, you, you can get the regular size or cartridge and get the extra large I always get the extra large cartridges because it's cheaper. It's a little bit cheaper per per print. And I especially do that for the black and white because I go through all the black and white ink. I don't print that much color, but I do it definitely. I, I get the extra large cartridge for the uh, for the black and white. We got an email from Mitchell M. Uh, Dr. Schertz, I've been an ardent listener to Tech Talk on Federal News Radio for a number of years. I enjoy the variety and depth of content you make available. Now, I've got a problem. Inadvertently, I managed to delete the entirety of my clipboard entries on my phone. I've got a Galaxy S20 5G. Now, I spoke to the Samsung customer service, and after a lengthy period of checking, they told me there's no way of recovering these listings. Now, that's likely an accurate response, but I thought I'd ask you, because if anybody could figure a way, it would be you. Thanks very much in advance for any consideration you give to this message. Uh, and uh, listen, waiting for your response. Very respectfully, Mitchell M. He is M as in mystery because he is one of the few people who doesn't tell us where he is writing us from. Exactly. There's no city. And, He's very mysterious. And, well, he did give me his last name, but I thought I would oh, no, read no, his we don't last want to name do... on the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't want to do that. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, well, I looked at the at the clipboard function in the Samsung uh, Galaxy, and this, the, uh, the the clipboard function is basically it's, it's, it's a feature built into the Samsung keyboard. You also could have a Google keyboard, and, and it has basically when you when you um, cut or when you basically copy and paste something uh, in, the, in the phone, you say you copy a, a text message and paste it somewhere else. It goes into temporary uh, clipboard. And um, in the uh, in the Samsung keyboard, uh, will store about 20 clipboard entries, and then they just overwrite them. Uh, and they don't, you know, they're they're ephemeral. They're not they're not expected to be there forever. They're not they're not really designed to be for permanent storage. Now, you can pin a particular um, clipboard entry, so you can you 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 can open up the clipboard and you can click on the. Uh, you know, click on that gear down on the um, d down at the bottom of the keyboard, and you can bring up the uh, the um, uh, the the manager that that manages the uh, the uh, the clipboard, and then you and then you can uh, you can review the 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 twenty clipboard items that are stored, and you can basically p select one. You can pin it, and if you pin it, it will permanently hold that item in the, in the clipboard. Now. I don't recommend that. If you got some really critical information, I'd recommend that you save it to the notepad, save it to your notes rather than put it in clipboard because clipboard is really not meant to be for permanently storing stuff. Now, 
the uh, so so you could uh, you know you go to the Samsung uh, keyboard and you could look to see whether there are any residual clipboard items there. I would say you've already done that because uh, you've talked to the Samsung people. Now it turns out that as you know in files, whenever you delete something, it really doesn't delete the whole file; it just deletes the header. So if a um, if a uh, if a clipboard entry was deleted and you haven't overwritten it, it is possible. It is possible that there could be some remnants of it in memory. Now, uh, now what you now it so so then the question is, well, where's clipboard stored? Well, it's stored in the system. There's a partition. One partition is relating for system files, and the other partition is for user files. And you save all your photos and everything in the user partition. But the clipboard is stored in the system partition. So the only way to get to the system files that clipboard where, where clipboard saves it is you've got to root the phone. So um, there, is, uh, there is something called a root explorer. It's a file explorer. And it's a root explorer. And you can, you can download that from the uh, Google Play Store. It's got a 4.7 rating. And, and that will, you use the root explorer, it will root your device, and then you can sort of look around at the files in the system partition. Now, I mean, the one reason that you've got to root the device to do that is that, you know, I, Google doesn't want you looking around that partition because you might delete a file that's critical to the operating system. So, so be just mindful that you're, you know, you're, you're walking on thin ends when you're there in the system's partition. But it turns out that uh, there's a, a subdirectory called data slash clipboard. So, there, so you go to the data subdirectory, and then within the data subdirectory, there's another subdirectory called clipboard. And so with the root explorer, you can go to data slash clipboard subdirectory and look around and see whether there's anything there. Uh, I, I think it's a long shot because probably things have been overwritten, but uh, but it's worth it's worth a shot. And uh, I, I wish you the best of luck, Mitchell. So here's the thing, too, uh, just to make it clear, because we haven't used the term much. Uh, it's it's a term that's been around forever, but root, R-O-O-T, and it's kind of like a family tree of your computer. I mean, you kind of see what connects to what and what the base of everything is, so you go deeper and deeper into, into the system itself very, very directly. Uh, so that's not something most people do anymore, I think, uh, for the most part. Uh, no, they, they really don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, if you root your iPhone, they call it jailbreaking the iPhone. Oh, that, that's the same as. That's, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Word. Yeah. That's the same word, jailbreaking. Yeah. Uh, it's where uh, basically you are, uh, you are, it gives you access to system files that the uh, that the uh, developer of the operating system wants to protect you from having. Yes. So it, you know it, it got this it, it got this name back in the in the Linux world, where the, the 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 highest level in the tree, the root, was was always reserved for the for the admin rights. And when people were in that operating system, you would never have access to the root uh, directory because if you had access to the root, you had access. To, everything you could delete the whole system and so in the unix world when people would 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 hack a server and get access to the root they would call that they've rooted the server and so that's it, it goes way back to then to those days but it's uh but i i i i think uh, mitchell you've got to you've got to find a better way to save critical data 
because contacts are rather, um, you know, that that particular um, clip, the clipboard is really not meant for this, is not meant for that purpose. That's more ephemeral. Uh, we got an email from Susan in Alexandria. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Schertz. Could you please explain the log four shell vulnerability in layman's terms? Is it uh, is the typical individual household user at risk? If so, what, if anything, can be done about it? Thanks again, Susan and Alexandria. And this is well, really straight out of the headlines, this question. it's uh, There's been a lot in the news about it this past there's year. There's a lot. Of, yeah, the log four shell vulnerability, this was uh, this was discovered. Log four shell is in the uh, uh, is in the uh, Java 4J library, and um, and this particular library it, it has programs that are used by operating systems for logging purposes. Like if you want, if you've got a router and you want to log, uh, you know, you want to log transactions, packets in, packets out, or you want to log. Who's who's logged into the to, to the to, to the router? Who what users have logged in? That you want to keep track of a lot of stuff, and this log four shell is used for that. It's all over the place. It's in servers, it's in routers, it's in any kind of Internet of Things device that wants to do any kind of logging function. It's um, it's there, and this log four shell, which is embedded everywhere, has a, a zero day vulnerability. I mean, this log four j library is in cloud servers, it's in online services, it's in all industries, government as well as non-government. It's about, as a tool goes, it's about as ubiquitous as you can get. Globally, millions of servers have logging tools installed. It tracks activities that are taking place in the code. Now, the flaw was discovered last month by workers at Alibaba, who reported it to the team at the Apache Software Foundation, a nonprofit, Apache Software Foundation, they maintain the log4j uh, code base. They reported it there, and it's it's maintained by volunteers, actually. There are only a, just a handful of people maintaining it, fewer than 10. That's rather it's surprising, a, isn't it, that something yeah. like that is uh, so informally managed? It, it, it Well, it, it, it's got the open source software protocols, yeah. but... You know, it was something developed years ago, and people just thought it was part of the mechanism of, uh, you know, of, of web servers. You know, the Apache web server is probably the dominant web server on on, on the internet, and so they, they it's a zero day exploit vulnerability, which means it, it's now that it's been spotted, but it's actually been exploited for some time. So uh, w using this particular exploit. A user could force a system to accept commands from a malicious remote server. Now, uh, these commands, it could, it could be to download and install code in vulnerable systems. Now, they've already noted that they have used this vulnerability to upload cryptocurrency mining software because they want to mine software, you know, earn money on Bitcoin. So there is some cryptocurrency mining uh, software up there that's been uploaded with this vulnerability. But they also could upload other malicious software. Now, the patch has has been written and it's been released. Now, the problem is figuring out where, where all those uh, patches have to be applied because it's everywhere. And, 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 the, and, the, and the regular user, the business, who say bought software, has software installed by vendors, he doesn't know what software programs they've used. So they're going to have to basically have to um, 
work with their vendors to find out where this logging software is so it can be patched. And so now the whole IT industry is like racing to get it done. So if you own a corporate website or something like that, what where are you turning for help to your own IT department or do you have to go somewhere else? I mean, how, who's, who's really going to well, be handling the, this? Well, the CISA government agency, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, is developing a comprehensive list of all products that include the effective code. Okay. And uh, and so you, you really, I think CISA is now actually trying to consolidate this data. And they're encouraging security researchers to share details on any product that they believe are infected. Now, so far, the infections have been quite modest but they don't expect it to stay that way. Um, right now, there's kind of a lull before the storm. Now, Microsoft said that they've observed multiple cyber criminal groups seeking to establish network activity by exploiting this vulnerability with the expected goal of selling access later on to ransomware operators. Oh, so wow. I think what they're doing, they're going in, they are basically compromising systems and then they're going to just wait. And and I think we're going to see a rash of ransomware out there sooner rather than later. Uh, now, as far as what can the actual user do, I mean, uh, b basically what you want to do is just update all the security patches for your computer at home. Uh, Microsoft just issued a whole, they, they had their patch Tuesday, they issued a, a lot of uh, security patches. So just make certain your computer at home is well patched. And then I don't think you'll have any effect. This The biggest action here is going to be on servers uh, and that are at companies. And I think we're going to see some ransomware uh, attacks in the near future. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes, we will. And uh, next, we meet the 30-year-old American who is creating the eBay of non-fungible tokens. Profiles in IT next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University. Coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Devin Fincer. Devin Fincer is a computer scientist who's best known as co-founder and CEA of OpenSea, an online marketplace for buying and selling crypto collectibles, also known as NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Devin Fincer was born in 1990 and attended Brown University, where he got a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science and Mathematics in 2013. Now, in 2011, that was his junior year, he was a member of the Brown University team that placed first at the LinkedIn Hack Day. His team created Rocks, a real-time 3D multiplayer in-browser game similar to Capture the Flag. It used WebGL and uh, various hardware acceleration. I mean, that was a big deal winning uh, the LinkedIn Hack Day. I, I, I looked at a video of that 2011 day when they were when they were competing. They they check in at five o'clock on a Friday evening, 5 p.m. And uh, the hacks or the programs that they develop are turned in at noon on Saturday to be judged. And the room was filled with interns. These were all interns. And uh, the Brown team got together. They came up with this hack. They worked all night. They had food, pizza, everything out there, coffee. And, uh, and then the team was judged. And so this was like a big deal to win this, uh, win this contest. And I think... I think that gave um, Devin Fincer and the folks from Brown a lot of notoriety out there at uh, Silicon Valley. Now, <clears throat> the same year, his junior year, he released a, um, a program called Course Kick to the rest of the student body. Now, Course Kick was a social class registration system that made it easy to pick your own classes and see what your friends were signing up for. See, that was a problem. When you go to do class registration, you might sign up for a Tuesday, Thursday class, but you don't know if your friends are in that class. And you'd like to go to class with your friends. So using Course Kick as for class registration, when you're signing up, you can see what your friends have signed up for. And so there's, it, it combined course registration with social networking. Within a few days, Course Kick had uh, 500 users. A few days later, it had 1,000 users. Within a week, it had 20% of Brown's entire student body on the platform. Now, it seems so to me it should be around 20% of all college. I mean, I'm surprised. Is this some out there in the world? Because um, it feels like every college kid would want this. I think this is a great tool. Yeah. I, I, I don't think he ever did anything right. with it. Right. I just, think it did He not... just sort of did it for the fun of it. Yeah. <clears throat> Somebody ought to pick kind of... that baton up on that one and because uh, this could really yeah. be a moneymaker. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was trying to just sort of – I think it was just learning how to how to develop applications that that would be that would be sought after by people. Yeah. Now, as a junior, he was selected for the Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield and Byers Fellowship Program. You know, KPCB, that's that's a big VC firm out in Silicon Valley. And they help college students and graduate students uh, work within Silicon Valley startups. So that was a very good entree for him. Now, he really did do the traditional college uh, process. He, he, he didn't drop out. He, he ended up getting his bachelor's degree. And every summer he went and did an internship. Like the first summer, uh, 
he interned at the Wikimedia Foundation, where he conducted statistical analysis of a pilot editing environment and what impact it would have on Wikipedia. His second summer, he interned as a software engineer uh, for the Google Cloud Platform, and he designed and implemented a two first-tier features for the Google Developer Console. In his third summer, he, uh, he was a software engineer intern for Flipboard, where he pitched, designed, and implemented an end-to-end full-page magazine-style layout for the Flipboard, Flipboard iPad app. By the way, I use Flipboard a lot. You can, it, what I do, like for Tech Talk, I do research for Tech Talk. I put in all the keywords of what I'm interested in. Flipboard goes out to the web. It searches for all these keywords. It makes a magazine for me, and then I can flip through my magazine for suggestions for Tech Talk. It's really, it really, it does my research for me. So that that's why you sent me thirteen links to look over yesterday. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay, I get it now. So 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 you you put in what you're interested in, and then you get a little magazine that's just made for you. Oh wow! And actually, I do like Flipboard. I've I've used it a lot over the past uh, past years, and so he designed a magazine style layout for the for the iPad. Now, he graduated in 2013 and accepted a job as a software engineer for Pinterest in San Francisco. And he led the, the growth team's virality initiative, how you to make things viral. They were optimizing outbound communication from Pinterest users to their networks, how to share, how to send, how to invite, how to make things viral. He designed and implemented an inviter on the mobile and, uh, app and on the, the web interface and it resulted in a three times increase in signups from invites. So it was helping build the, uh, build the population of the Pinterest community. In 2015, he, uh, he, he co-founded a small company called it Iris Labs. Now he built, and his team, they, they built a series of mobile apps, actually iCharts, uh, uh, and the, the app was called iChart Pro. It was for vision testing. And, and it's been installed almost a million times, and it's in wide use in the medical community. It was really widely done. He didn't really uh, monetize that so much, but he, he developed this application that was accepted by the medical community. And so that was his second foray into trying to start something that, that would really, uh, really make an impact. And that same year, 2015, he co-founded ClaimDog. Now, this actually he made money on. Now, Claim Dog was an interesting thing. It, it helps you find if a business owes you money. So what happened is that you, you, know, you set up an account in Claim Dog, and then it searches the Internet for any, any uh, evidence of businesses that owe you money. And so uh, Claim Dog was eventually sold to Credit Karma in 2016 after only, um, after only a year. So he monetized that pretty quickly. But part of the deal was he then was he then worked for for Credit Karma as a, as an engineering manager, and his job uh, as part of the Claim Dog acquisition was to scale and launch a product known as Credit Karma Unclaimed Money. So he launched that product, and uh, and he. Um, you know, and 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 Credit Karma successfully used that. I do like Credit Karma. It's it's a good way to track your credit score. And every time you query it, it doesn't lower your credit score because you've you've you've, you've queried it. Credit Credit Karma's they've got nice feature set. Now 
Working at Credit Karma, he became fascinated with the whole blockchain thing. You know, you know, uh, the distributed validation system set up for Bitcoin and the whole economic system that gave it a rise. This was back in 2016. So he started, uh, he started uh, looking around. He says, you know, I, I, I'd like to start some kind of business in that general space. So he, he worked with another, uh, w- w- with another computer science graduate, Alex Atala. Now, Alex was a CS graduate from Stanford. <clears throat> and they came up with an idea for Wi-Fi coin, which was a um, which was a uh, cyber, which was another blockchain, and their and their cryptocurrency was Wi-Fi, uh, Wi-Fi coin, and and Wi-Fi coin was provided in exchange for sharing access to a Wi-Fi router. So suppose you have your your Wi-Fi router and you want you let people share your Wi-Fi, um, you get paid in Wi-Fi coin. And then you could take your Wi-Fi coin and go to somebody else's Wi-Fi router and use your Wi-Fi coin to buy access to their router. So you would have a cryptocurrency blockchain managed distributed Wi-Fi network in the country. That was the basic idea. But, Doc, so you this, often talk about the, uh, you know, we're always talking about securing our Wi-Fi routers and uh, people, you know, getting on them. Um, so how, how would they take? How would you take care of the security aspect if you're letting a stranger buy access to your own Wi-Fi router? Well, I'm, I'm sure it had the built-in security so that you, you they, they couldn't hack your network. Right. So, On the other hand, yeah. uh, what you don't have protection from if they do something like child porn from your IP wow, address. Wow, and it's uh, tracked to your IP address. It's tracked to your IP address. Yeah. Now, now, now the one. Good thing, I suppose, with Wi-Fi coin, if they've bought access with Wi-Fi coin, that it's traceable back to them through the blockchain. So uh, now it may not be, it, there may be some anonymity with it through the blockchain, but you probably would have evidence that you had sold access with the Digicoin and there would be some blockchain evidence to sort of protect you from the police. But I, I don't think I would join that network, Andrew. I'd, there you for, go. Yeah, for all okay. The that's that's the answer I'm looking for at the moment. <laughs> now, 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 what what these guys now? Why Carp Combinator is always looking for you know innovative guys to to give them seed money. So why why Combinator, which is a um, which is an incubator, uh, decided uh, that these two guys that had started Digicoin. Uh, Devin Fincer and his friend Alex, they said, well, you know, th- these guys are, are the kind of people we, we'd like to, uh, you know, we, we'd like to support. Now, Y Combinator was not a, was not really big into the crypto space, but they said, but we like these guys. They're innovative. So they, they decided to make them a member of the Y Combinator class of 2018. And <clears throat> they had started their business, uh, Digicoin, in December of 2017. So they... Uh, they 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 joined Y Combinator, and they were going to uh, develop Digicoin. Uh, <clears throat> and then that year, actually in 2017 is when it hit. When it hit, something hit that totally changed uh, Devon's view of the world. Crypto kitties hit the market, and crypto kitties are these pictures of cats, animated pictures of cats that people were selling on the on the internet as non-fungible tokens as NFTs. 
And you could buy two crypto kitties and you could mate them and then you'd have a baby crypto kitty that would have a combination of the attributes. They call them catributes, actually. They would have a combination of the catributes of your two kitties. And these things started selling for a lot of money on the internet, these crypto kitties. And so Fincer and Atala, they said, you know, uh, maybe this Digicoin is sort of a lame idea. Why don't we do something in this crypto kitty space? Because there's a lot of money being made there. So they pivoted their, they pivoted, and they decided uh, to make a platform that could host a lot of non-fungible tokens, not just crypto kitties. And they wanted to make it so it was open to a lot of wide variety of tokens. They wanted to support a lot of underlying blockchains. So they called it OpenSea because they, want, they wanted it to be open to many NFT formats as well as many blockchains. So they, they started <clears throat> OpenSea, which was an NFT marketplace. And, uh, and they got uh, they they got their pre-seed money from Y Combinator. They got a hundred and twenty thousand dollars. They actually got the pre-seed money for Digicoin, and then they pivoted to to OpenSea. And they started uh, they started working quite quite diligently on it. And um, in the beginning, there was not a lot of NFT action. I guess I should talk about non-fungible tokens. What is what is fungible? So if uh, fungible, by the way, is a, is a legal term. If you if you look up the word fungible, it means uh, it means able to replace or be replaced by another identical item. In other words, mutually interchangeable. So let's say a five dollar bill is fungible. Uh, you have a five dollar bill. It doesn't matter. And you get another $5 bill. It's a different serial number, but it's essentially equivalent. So so uh, currency is fungible. O on the other hand, uh, if, if you have a painting, it's one of a kind. It's non-fungible. Almost anything in the real world is non-fungible. People are non-fungible. People are not interchangeable. Anything you could sell on eBay is non-fungible. Um, and so... What you want to have, and the problem with digital assets is, <clears throat> you know, you, you don't want a digital asset that, that can be switched around and is interchangeable with something else. So you want a non-fungible digital asset, something that, that can't be changed. And so that was the, you know, the, the, the beginning of the non-fungible uh, token. So they, they, started, uh, they, they started developing OpenSea and... Uh, and it was a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace for exchanging, for you know, for uh, exchanging and selling uh, digital goods, gaming items, digital art, uh, and other goods that are backed by a blockchain. See, like a gaming item, for instance. Like if you if you're a member of Fortnite and you play the Fortnite game, and then you buy you you buy skins, you buy clothes, you buy different looks. Okay, so when we and and they you own them when you're playing Fortnite. But now suppose that you want to sell them to somebody. You can't transfer it to anybody else. So there, there, there is a need. If, if you could make your, your skins and your clothing in Fortnite an NFT, you could transfer them to the, to the NFT marketplace. You could sell them to somebody else, and they could use them in their game. So I think gaming, is going to, there's going to be a big application for, for, uh, for non-fungible tokens. So they, uh, 
they they wanted to create a place where you could have you could customize your own marketplace. So I, I set up an NFT on OpenSea. I mean, it took me about half an hour, really. You you know you and uh, and you create it. You create a subdirectory. I uploaded some of my digital art and uh, and created an NFT. I never actually took it to, to the marketplace to sell it. I haven't I haven't sold it yet, but I've done it there. Now OpenSea conforms to the ERC 721 standard. That was the standard that CryptoKitty developed. The CryptoKitty people on how you on how you hold uh, on how you hold you know how you can store digital uh, digital information. Now they built the blockchain on Ethereum. I mean, they, they built the marketplace on top of Ethereum. So all of the transfers of the NFTs are, are recorded in the Ethereum blockchain. And the sales are conducted through smart contracts. And users, uh, you know, keep their, you know, you know users will, uh, will, will, you know, if they sell something, they get to uh, keep the money. And then, and then OpenSeas gets a, a commission of 2.5% for any NFT that is sold. But you can build in these smart contracts all kinds of things. Like an artist could sell his digital art, and he could build into the NFT that any time it's subsequently resold, he gets a commission. He gets a 5% royalty when it's resold. And that's baked into the smart contract. So he's guaranteed to get the money. So if in 10 years somebody sells that digital asset uh, and they transfer the NFT through the through the uh, through the uh, uh, through the blockchain, that smart contract will be enforced, and he'll automatically get his commission, which is really a great great idea. And this can be a real world piece of art too that has an <laughs> NFT attached to it. It can be. That's yeah. exactly right. So you, you could view as NFTs as a certificate of authenticity that would say would go with a piece of art. So you would you you could have an external link that would go to go to an actual piece of art. Uh, you could you could have an external link that would go to a um, to something that's stored on the web in a subdirectory. Uh, the actual NFT itself is not typically uh, the actual piece of art itself is typically not stored within the NFT itself because there's there's not enough uh, there's not enough room to, to to store the actual NFT. So you're linking to something out of the NFT typically. Now. These guys uh, made uh, quite a bit of money by uh, by December. In December of 2020, they sold 2.8 million dollars of NFTs on the site. By August of 2021, <laughs> they sold 3.4 billion dollars of NFTs on their site. 3.4 billion dollars, and they're getting. 2.5% commission on that. So they were making a lot of money. Now, let's let's go through all the money that they raised. It's, it's interesting. They got their pre-seed uh, uh, pre money from Y Combinator for $120,000. That got them started during the pivot times. Then in May of 2018, they raised $2 million of uh, seed money and that was led uh, by uh, by uh, uh, by eye confirmation uh, and and um, and a number of other about eight uh, eight investors there in that in that seed money. Then in March of 2021, that would be three years later, they raised another 20, $23 million dollars of Series A. That was led by Anderson Horowitz. And others, Mark Cuban also inv invested in that round. 
In July of 2021, they raised another $100 million of Series B's, of the Series B, and that was led by Andrazine Horowitz. And that had uh, Ashton Kutcher was, uh, yeah, was, was the, actually the guy from uh, that 70s show, the lovable dummy who's very, very bright and smart and very in involved in funding uh, things on in the world of technology. Yeah. Uh, so Kutcher. that was yeah. in so when they when they raised one hundred million dollars, the valuation of the company was one point five billion. So they went from twenty seven to twenty twenty one. The, the valuation went up to one point five billion dollars. Now, their sales started just going through the roof and a lot of investors want to come in. So there's now another group of investors that's made an offer. They said, look, we want to invest more money in, um, in your company, in OpenSea, and we'll give it and we'll do that investment at a valuation of $10 billion. So the marketplace is valuing the company at $10 billion just based on profitability. Now, OpenSeas really hasn't taken that offer because they don't need the money. They're making money now. And so, uh, but, now he's, but now he's in a company that's worth $10 billion in only, in only four years. So it's an interesting story how he went from just, just a small idea to something that was so powerful. So there, everything you want to know about about Devin Finzer, the co-founder and CEO of OpenSea. And yet another unicorn company, too, privately held company worth $1 billion or more. Pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair as we join Doc for his observations from the faculty lounge on what motivates innovation. Coming up next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. I want to look at what is the motivation that drives Innovation. The, the last three shows, we talked about Claude Shannon, who was a big innovator in dig, all things digital. Last week, we talked about Alexander Wang, who, uh, who developed a, um, a, a company that supports machine learning. And this week, we talked about Devin Fincer. 
So what actually drove the innovation for these three individuals? Now, Claude Shannon talked a lot about this. He said he didn't look for inspiration. He said it, he didn't get his ideas by sitting out on the mountaintop looking at the, uh, looking at the sunset. He didn't look for inspiration. He looked for irritation. Shannon believed an idea might come from a good conversation, tinkering in the workshop and what he had aimless play that he indulged in most of his life, like building juggling machines or building hidden walls. It came from doing things, but not waiting. Shannon was always seeking a slight irritation when things didn't look quite right or a constructive dissatisfaction. Like irritation got him to rethink uh, analog uh, communications. I mean, they, 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 they couldn't communicate uh, an, uh, with analog communications over long distances because eventually the noise would swamp the signal. So it prompted him to rethink that and invent digital communication. He didn't like the complexity of analog computation. And so he used Boolean algebra and showed that you could digitize signals, digitize uh, values, and use digital processing. So he invented digital, the whole field of information processing because of issues that he had with analog. Now, Alexander Wang realized that data was the big bottleneck. Everybody talking about machine learning, but anytime you start working on machine learning, uh, very quickly you realize that, that you've got to label the data. I mean, it's very hard to go in and manually labor the label the data, because if you don't label the data, you, you really can't implement the machine learning, learning algorithm. So you had to go through and label the data. That was a huge problem. So, and everybody was confronted with that same problem. So he developed uh, tools, standardized tools and infrastructure to solve this data curation problem. And that prompted him to create scale AI. So, you know, any, 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 and his initial irritation was when he was trying to find somebody stealing food out of his refrigerator, he set up a webcam, but then he realized he just had all this video data and there was no way to actually synthesize it down to exactly when something was being stolen. It was a big job to curate the data. And that's when he realized that that was the big bottleneck. Now, Devin Fincher, uh, you know, started looking at these crypto kitties and he realized that there, was, that there wasn't an open platform for, for you know, for transferring non-fungible tokens. They, they weren't called NFTs then, they, they were just selling crypto kitties. There wasn't a way to, you know, to trade digital assets easily. And there wasn't an infrastructure that just allowed the everyday guy to go in there and set something up. So he set up to apply the standards and, and develop an interface that would be very easily addressed by just individuals so that they could, uh, they, they could trade, they could buy, and they could sell digital assets. So in all three cases, these gentlemen uh, found something that bothered them. There was a deficiency, and they built their company around it. And I think almost all companies really start out that way. And it's, it's always fun to go back and look at the underlying motivation that got people to, to start their companies or to, or to invent.
Yeah, just getting annoyed sometimes is all the motivation you need. <laughs> That's exactly right. So Devin Finzer, you know, he wants to take this way beyond CryptoKitties, uh, and uh, he thinks the NFTs have uh, many, many applications in the future. Just two months ago, he said this on the Colossus podcast. What's most exciting is just sort of the expansion of NFTs into new areas. So right now, the use cases are collectibles and art and a little bit of gaming. But I think... Ultimately, this is something that could impact every single industry. It's just sort of a matter of when it makes sense. So physical items, there's been a few projects where physical items are kind of turned into NFTs and bought and sold as NFTs, but then redeemable for the actual physical item, which is really cool. So you can imagine like a whole chunk of OpenSea that's devoted to buying and selling physical items. I don't know if we'll get into this area, but I do think generally real estate could benefit from being tokenized as an NFT. And, and maybe there are some interesting later stage applications of that. Event tickets, all of these things I think will start to emerge over time. As a platform, I think we really do want to try to support these verticals as best we can and provide the interface and trading and buying and selling experience that's tailored towards those specific use cases. So doing a better job supporting games, doing a better job supporting art, I think you'll see sort of a more customized and tailored experience yeah, and this is even extending to the world of music now. So like the band Kings of Leon this year released an album that is actually a non-fungible token, and it includes goodies like event offers, ticket offers, uh, merch, things like that. So here's a bit of the first hit off that album, uh, the song The Bandit. Fungible token. <laughs> that is uh, right? that is amazing. Yeah. And, well, I I can see where uh, you know where non NFTs make sense for music. Look at all the times that people would buy tracks in their Apple iTunes and then discovered that they couldn't access them someplace else except inside of Apple iTunes. Right. Now, really, every one of those tracks should have been an NFT that's tracked with blockchain, so you don't have to go down and prove a thousand times that you own that track. I mean, I get, I got so fed up with the iTunes thing because I'd want to listen to my music at home. I couldn't if I would copy them to an external hard drive, so I'd back them up. It was I had to prove that I owned them again, and so there was no infrastructure for transferring those. So I I think that actually makes uh, makes uh, makes quite a bit of sense. But the transaction fees have to go down before you can sell small things like that, because you know right now the Ethereum is so. You know, validating the, the blockchain is so expensive that uh, that what they call the, the gas, the, the Ethernet fees are the Ethereum fees are a little bit high. That's so you, you want can only do expensive items now. But once they find a way to cut down on the processing using proof of stake, for instance, uh, methods that have less pro less processing requirements, uh, we may be able to then start trading in low cost items.
but a lot of ha is happening in this whole space. Now, I think we've got time to talk about AirTags. Just barely. Yes, just three barely, minutes. Yeah, we just barely. Okay, AirTags, of course, are this, tra this tracker system that, that Apple has created. And, um, and it, it, will, it will link to your iPhone uh, using Bluetooth. So like like I've I've got a tracker and I've I've got an AirTag tracker on my keys. So if I lose my keys in the house, I can turn on my Find My Phone and I can go to Things, and I can walk around the house and it will say when I'm getting closer to my keys. Now, if for instance I would leave my keys at a restaurant, okay. So and I'm left the restaurant, so I'm not out in Bluetooth range. Uh, the 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 AirTag will link to any other iPhone in the restaurant that's within Bluetooth range, and it will send back its location data to me when I do find my phone. So I'll be able to track my AirTag using the GPS information from other iPhones. And there's so many iPhones out there that it's very, very successful. So what, what happened is, so AirTags are really a very good way to keep track of items that you may lose. Now, the problem is people were using AirTags to stalk people. There were, pe you know, guys were putting it in, in, a, in, a, in a woman's purse, and then they could track her. They could, of course, if she had an iPhone, they could track her, uh, you know, as she was going around. Or if, uh, if, if, uh, if she didn't have an iPhone, but her friends had iPhones, you could track her. And so people were really, privacy experts were really worried about this stalking issue. So Apple, first of all, fixed the stalking issue for iPhone users. So if you have an iPhone uh, and, and there's an AirTag that you're not linked to following you around, your, your iPhone will notify you of that device and give you the ability to turn it off. So that was actually very, very effective. Now, the, um, um, but the problem was, if you had an Android phone, you wouldn't be able to do that. Well, this last week, and this is the point of this whole discussion, this last week, Apple released an Android app that you can bring up the Android app, and it will tell you if there's an if there's an AirTag which is following you around that you're not tracking. Now, and that it works really well as long as the app is open. Now, part of the critics have said uh, that uh, that you've got to open up the app. It doesn't do it automatically. But this is a good step to, to do anti-stalking. Anti Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk@stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs in cybersecurity, network management, uh, accounting, business, health sciences, nursing, uh, culinary arts, hospitality, and let them know that you've heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.